Hey folks, Ben Wickler here. And for returning listeners, can I just say, I know how long it has been since our last episode, and there's a very good reason for it. Actually, there are two reasons. The first is that when you last heard from us on February 3rd, which was my 34th birthday, we were in the middle of an all-out make-or-break Kickstarter campaign to raise our budget for year two of the show. The second reason is that when you last heard from us, we were right on the cusp of me and my wife having our second child. Her due date was February 17th. And yes, that's right. It means I had made the colossally stupid decision to schedule the Kickstarter campaign right when my daughter was supposed to be born, something I've promised my wife that I will never do again. On February 3rd, when we released episode 40, we had about two days to go in the campaign, and we were still $37,000 short. And then the next two days blew my mind. A friend of mine who does not have a lot of money announced that he was chipping in $340 because it was my 34th birthday and started challenging other people to do the same, and people started doing it. My friend Eli Perizer, who started Upworthy, wrote, The good fight is the kind of media a lot of us want, focused on the important stuff, entertaining as hell, and hopeful, and then asked everyone he knew to chip in. Chris Hayes, the amazing TV guy, tweeted and asked his 416,000 followers on Twitter to help fight the good fight. Help was pouring in from every side. And as I went to bed the night before the deadline, we were within $13,000 of our goal. Well, when I did wake up, I turned on the recorder on my phone. All right, it is, what time is it? 7.01 a.m. on February 5th, Friday. It's Wednesday, Thursday. The last morning of the Kickstarter. And, and Daddy, there no button is. You know, Mackie, what we're going to do is we're going to check the Kickstarter, Daddy's Kickstarter campaign for his, the good fight for this podcast and see whether we got to our goal. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to do it. Okay, ready? Yeah. It's on the page. Let's see what it says. Yay! Yeah! Uh, Yay! Oh my god! Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> oh. 102,000. You did it, Mackie. Oh. Mackie, Daddy did it. <laughs> That final day was such a rush. The whole day was basically a party. People kept chipping in. We reached $115,000. That made us the number eight top-funded podcast project in Kickstarter history. Thanks to 1,044 of us, we have the funds and resources and help we need to roar into year two of this show. And I have to thank you so, so, so much. And by the way, if you didn't get a chance to pitch in and want to, go to thegoodfight.fm slash support to look for ways to help. And the other great news was that my daughter had not yet been born. In fact, she didn't arrive by her actual due date, which was February 17th. Uh, She did something very Wicklerian, which is that she showed up late. Susie Lynn Wickler was born on February 24th at 10.48 p.m. here in Washington, D.C., You will hear more from Susie Lynn Wickler, I'm sure, in future episodes of The Good Fight. So that is the story of what has happened, folks. But I've reemerged from baby fog enough to finish this episode to give you my sincere thanks for holding on and for making the future of the show possible. And to note, 
that along with our community of amazing friends, family, and listeners, The Good Fight is also powered by our sponsor and partner, MoveOn.org Political Action, which is working to encourage Senator Elizabeth Warren to run for President of the United States, a call that was endorsed this week by the editorial page of the Boston Globe. Learn more at runwarrenrun.org or at moveon.org. Episode 41 of The Good Fight starts now. Every episode of The Good Fight tells the story of a David versus Goliath battle to change the world from the behind the slingshot point of view. But a lot of folks naturally wonder what happened after the story? Did everyone just live happily ever after, or what? So, for this episode, as we transition from year one to year two of Good Fight history, we thought we'd go back to a few of our favorite guests from our first year of shows and hear the after story. We spoke to Sister Simone Campbell, America's number one lobbyist nun, to Shannon Watts, the amazing founder of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, who is single-mommedly, or I guess 100,000-mommedly, facing down the NRA, and Garland Gilchrist II, formerly co-host of The Good Fight's own Win Report, and now leading the charge to reverse Detroit's brain drain. Each of them has been doing amazing things, and I hope you'll enjoy catching up with them as much as we did. So first, Sister Simone Campbell. Sister Simone Campbell wrote the book, A Nun on the Bus, How All of Us Can Create Hope, Change, and Community. She's the star of the documentary film, Nuns on the Bus, and she's creator of The Nuns on the Bus, the cross-country social justice nun bus tours. She was the featured guest on Good Fight Episode 7, How the Nuns Saved Obamacare, which remains our single most popular episode to date. We caught up with her about what's been happening since Saving Obamacare, about the second Nuns on the Bus tour, this time focused on immigration reform, and on her new fight inspired by Pope Francis to change the winner-take-all culture of American capitalism. So we did three weeks, uh, 15 states, 6,700 miles. It was a huge trip. Going from Ellis Island, looking at at Ellis Island in New Jersey, to looking at Angel Island in California. So it sounds like when you came up with the idea of the second tour, it it wasn't just that you and and the other sisters were looking for an excuse to hit the road again. (laughs) No, I was begging, oh, don't set us out there. (laughs) Uh, but, But because it's hard work. It's really hard work. How many nuns were on the bus? We had the possibility of having a maximum of eight on that bus. And uh, so most of the time we did have eight, but people came and went. So that we had a total of, I think, about 40 sisters that rotated through. What was the average age of the sisters on the tour? (laughs) Good question. Good question. Well, out of the three trips, the oldest sister we've had on the bus uh, was 88. So that was Sister Alice up in Minnesota this last year. Uh, the average age, show, I don't know, 75 or so. It's not like we're a bunch of young things. And was it like a rock tour where the nuns are the rock stars, but there's a group of like roadies and you know, people <laughs> liking your guitars and stuff like that? 
<laughs> yeah, no guitars, though. We get up every morning, and the sisters spend a half hour together in prayer because we got to get grounded uh, in being reflective together about why we're doing it and what matters. Just like a rock tour. Is there a, a, an aspect of you know, of your faith that informs how you think about immigration specifically? Certainly, the whole issue of immigration is based in the dignity of an individual and the fact that hungry people have a right to live in dignity. Um, the Jesus in the gospel, the Christian scriptures, um, they were immigrants. They fled to Egypt uh, when he was a baby and knew what it was to have to leave their homeland for safety and security. So from my perspective, our scriptures are all about welcoming the homeless and bringing in the one who is left out. Um, That fuels me. But here's the other thing, is the pragmatics of our economy require immigrants. So for me, it's both a matter of faith and good sense economics that matter. The thing that happened for us, for me, on the trip is we met so many amazing people who are making such a difference in our nation, but are so frightened by our lack of a comprehensive immigration law that it that it just really touched my heart deeply. Uh, it was really, really a profound experience. Let, let me tell you about Ida who we met in Savannah. We were at the Sisters of Mercy uh, convent in Savannah, and um, it was a Sunday morning, and many of the undocumented in the area who trust the sisters came to that gathering. And we couldn't make it a public gathering because uh, they were apprehensive that they would be in danger, but they wanted to tell us their story. So this is like a secret meeting of of immigrants and nuns at the Sisters of Mercy convent in Savannah, Georgia. Exactly, exactly. And they had a little breakfast put out, I remember, and we sat in this lovely, newly refurbished room, kind of like a, um, oh, I don't know, sun porch type thing. And there were about 30 of us kind of crowded into the sun porch. It was beautiful, beautiful morning light. And, you know, the moths and savannas is gorgeous. And Ida's story is the one that that touched me the most because she had gotten her uh, dreamer paper so that she now would not be deported. But she was always terrified that her parents would be deported. And so she got her driver's license. And you know what she did? She drove her parents to work every day and said to her parents, the 17-year-old said to her parents, don't leave work. I'm coming to get you after work. And if you go off with anybody, call me. I want to make sure that you're safe. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was 17, that was the kind of thing my parents would tell me. But here she was taking care of her parents. Her parents were very shy and spoke only Spanish or only felt comfortable speaking Spanish. So I got to speak with them a little bit afterwards, and they were so proud of their daughter for being able to speak up and speak English, and but also so worried that something would happen, that they'd get arrested. Because, you know, Georgia has all those horrible laws. If you get stopped, you could get, you can get deported. Hmm. But the hope in the room as the care of the sisters for these families as well as their care for each other was almost palpable it was very dear 
Very dear. So you guys, so the the, the bus had come into Savannah, and you you stopped at this convent, and so the word had sort of gotten out in the community, so people sort of came in trying to avoid getting spotted by you know, police or or what have you on their way there, and then they shared their stories with you, and that sort of then was on your shoulders to go <laughs> to go fight and bring their voices to to DC, a place where there was huge risk to them if they tried to travel or speak out. Absolutely. But but it's not like it's a weight on my shoulders. It's a joy of my heart. Do you remember the day that the, the president made his immigration executive action order? Oh, yes, yes. We, we watched it uh, here at uh, Network. I remember it well. There are actions that I have the legal authority to take that will help make our immigration system more fair and more just. And this morning, I began to take some of those actions. If you've been in America for more than five years, if you have children who are American citizens or legal residents, if you register, you pass a background check, you are willing to pay your fair share of taxes, then you're going to be able to apply to stay in this country temporarily without fear of deportation. It's not perfect, but it's a step forward. And Ida's parents, because of the president's executive order, her parents will be able to get deferred action on um, and be able to stay here without her worrying about them anymore. Isn't that huge? It's it's just so important. So what's what's next? What is your what's the big fight that you're focused on right now? So what's coming up is, well, the Pope's coming to town in September. So we're getting ready to focus on the his concern for the economic reality in our society. I did a business roundtable in Chicago, and um, the I got to ask towards, and we'd only had an hour, and towards the end of it, I got to say, well, it had just been published that the CEOs, uh, average CEO in a public tra- uh, traded company, made $10 million a year and they were going for $11 million. and so I got to ask these entrepreneurs, these six entrepreneurs I was meeting with, to, you know guys I, I don't understand it is it that the CEOs are not getting by on $10 million, that they need $11 million to get by or what is it? And one of the guys responded really quickly, he says, no, no Sister Simone, it's not about the money. And I said, it's not? And he goes, no, no, no. We're very competitive, and we want to win. It just happens that the measure of winning is money. And I said, like, just in a heartbeat, could we make the measure something a little less toxic? And that story, for me, gets at why we've got this huge income and wealth disparity right now. It's just about winning. It's not about trying to keep people from having money, but the consequence of wanting to win is others lose out. What's your favorite moment from the last year with um, of something that you've seen seen the Pope do or say? Um, or, or a favorite? Oh my gosh, there's so many. It's really hard. Um, he's got this fabulous... Um, Say a statement in his Joy of the Gospel, where what is Joy of the Gospel? Is it a is it oh, a what speech is it? or a book? It's an exhortation that the Pope issued in November of 2013. Usually, Vatican documents are really boring, and they're like cures for insomnia. Mm-hmm. But this one, I took home to read, 
And it kept me awake really late at night till I finished it because it was so exciting. It was so exciting. He he does this amazing critique of the free market and says that we can't allow the free market to go unregulated by government because the market is as corrupt as any other human institution, and so the role of government is to regulate it, which a bunch of folks will disagree with because they just want to do, you know, market's wonderful, let the market take care of it. And then he says, if anyone feels offended by my words, I would respond that I speak them with affection and with the best of intentions, quite apart from any personal interest or political ideology. My words are not those of a foe or an opponent. I'm interested only in helping those who are enthralled to an individualistic, indifferent, and self-centered mentality to be freed from those unworthy chains and to attain a way of living and thinking which is more humane, noble, and fruitful, and which will bring dignity to their presence on this earth. Isn't that fabulous? Did you have those words committed to memory? Oh, no, no, I grabbed my book. <laughs> but I'm getting close to having it committed to memory. It's paragraph 208 in Joy of the Gospel. It is, for me, the, my one of my favorite uh, passages. Cool. Oh, I love that. Seriously, this cultural change is possible. Yeah. So I, I think it is possible. It, it's not too Pollyanna, I don't think. Sister Simone Campbell, thank you so much for rejoining us on The Good Fight. Oh, thanks for the chance. I enjoyed it. Take care. That again was Sister Simone Campbell of the Nun Social Justice Lobby Network. Learn more at networklobby.org and pick up a copy of her book. Coming up, our reunion with Garland Gilchrist II, past host of The Win Report and now fighter for the future of Detroit. But first, our second interview of the day, Shannon Watts. She's the executive director of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. She was the star of episode 19 of The Good Fight. And if you listen back to that episode, you'll hear her describe the moment that transformed her life. It was her reaction to the Newtown Massacre on December 14th, 2012, when 26 schoolchildren were gunned down at an elementary school in Connecticut. I was devastated, but it very quickly turned into anger. You know, I lived through so many mass shootings and hadn't done anything. And so when this happened, I had this feeling of, if I don't do something, I'm going to feel culpable because this is going to happen again. But I also thought, what can a stay-at-home mom do from Zionsville, Indiana? The answer, more than anyone could have expected. On episode 19 of our show, Shannon told the story of the first year in her fight for gun reform, from getting companies like Starbucks to ban the carrying of guns in their stores to teaming up with Michael Bloomberg. For this episode, she told us what's happened since. What's your favorite win from the last six months? I would say Chipotle was an astounding win. And what I loved about Chipotle, you know, moms and women in this country are huge users of social media. The, the image we shared of these two guys carrying, you know, semi-automatic rifles inside Chipotle just went so viral so immediately. It was on The Daily Show. It was on Stephen Colbert. It was on the national news. Um, it was everywhere. And that, that was something our moms 
made happen. Nation, these restaurants are forcing patriots to make the hardest choice any American can face between high-powered weaponry and fried food. You know, Chipotle didn't want to see that <laughs> any more than they would want someone sitting and smoking inside their restaurant. They, you know, there's this vocal minority that believes there should be unfettered access. You know, everyone should have a gun everywhere all the time. And it's, it's just not something that moms want. That is not an America that moms are looking for. As soon as Chipotle made its announcement that it no longer wanted guns of any kind uh, in its stores, but in particular it didn't want open carry, um, Governor Rick Perry was asked about this on CNBC. It just, to me, shows the impact and the power of what companies do, legislators react to, and vice versa. What was your sort of strategy going into the 2014 elections? What happened and what did you take away from it? Well, the the strategy going into the elections was really to build momentum for what we call gun sense. It's really the idea that we could be doing more to protect our families from gun violence. So we were really cautiously excited going into the midterms and then coming out of them. We were just plain excited (laughs) because, you know, people sometimes equate how the Democrats did with how what they consider progressive issues. And, And some people consider gun safety progressive. We consider it completely nonpartisan, right? Everyone should be for gun safety. And so what happened coming out of the elections was that gun safety did incredibly well. You know, we kept so many governors on who had come out in favor of gun safety and had even passed sweeping legislation in their states, like Governor Hickenlooper in in Colorado and the Connecticut governor. And and they they hung on. Um, And that was because of, not in spite of, their votes on gun safety. You know, in in the state of Oregon, we finally have a background check majority who can do the right thing. You know, we lost on background checks by one vote the last couple of years in the state of Oregon. This year, hopefully, we can get that to pass. This is You're the only person who I've spoken to who I agree with very strongly on an issue that they're really passionate about, who has, like good news about 2014. This is very refreshing to hear. Yeah, and, and, and if you look back at the media coverage, I mean, you know, they agreed with us finally. Sometimes I, I get really frustrated with the media who play out this narrative all the time that, you know, we might as well just throw up our hands and go home. But after the 2014 elections and the win in Washington State in particular, media was kind of like, okay, we get your point. You are winning in the states. We were just able to put enough pressure on the governor of Michigan, who is a Republican pro-gun governor, to veto a bill, an NRA-supported bill, that would have kept guns in the hands of some domestic abusers. Mm. He did the right thing and vetoed that because of our pressure. And we really think the NRA, after decades of fighting to keep guns in the hands of domestic abusers, realizes that is a losing issue with Republicans and Democrats alike. And if you look at the most recent elections in Virginia, uh, when the governor and, and all of the Virginia leadership voted in, took a very strong stand in favor of gun safety publicly. They didn't ignore it. They didn't downplay it. They didn't reject it. They embraced it, and they won. And by the way, over 90% of Americans support what we're doing. So, of course, they're voting for it in the states. It's Congress that isn't supportive. It's not the country. Why is Congress not getting the message in? 
Well, you know, to think that the Congress that has been, you know, in the in the pocket of the gun lobby for the last several decades would somehow be a completely different Congress the day after Sandy Hook was, in retrospect, unrealistic. It's the same Congress we had the day before, and it's a Congress that was very afraid of the gun lobby. They have to get the message that if they vote the right way, they will keep their job. And doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, our message is, if you don't vote with us, we will vote against you, and we will do everything in our power to get you out of office. So what's next? Well, obviously, we have the 2016 election coming up. What, the what? Where we hope I haven't heard about we this. Get... <laughs> well, it's coming. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a very good sign that um, Hillary Clinton, although not a formal candidate yet, has already spoken out in favor of gun safety and in favor of background checks. Um, hopefully that, that shows that it's polling well because candidates don't typically come out in favor of such controversial issues unless they, they feel like it's a winning issue. And we'll, we'll do the same thing again in the, as we did in the midterm elections, which is to educate voters and, and to try to get more members of Congress in place who will do the right thing. Like, what's this last year been like for you personally? I can't tell you how, how often the NRA attacks me, you know, every year. Frankly, it's something that we leverage. I mean, it's something that, that they don't seem to realize does not put them in good standing in the eyes of all women, not just women who support us, but women in general, you know, to, to accuse me of not being a so-called real mom or a real stay-at-home mom um, because, you know, I'm, I'm doing this or because I've had a career in the past. They seem to think that that's somehow going to score them points, and yet they, they're so tone-deaf that we can use their attacks um, and leverage those to show just how radicalized and extreme the leadership of the NRA has become. I have a personal page on, on Facebook, and, um, you know, constantly these people who are so opposed to common-sense gun safety measures like background checks find it necessary to try to hack my Gmail account or hack my Facebook page or, um, you know, break into my Twitter account. And, uh, you know, I have to protect my personal safety, but at the same time, I'm now a public figure. And that's been an interesting balance. The, the daily death threats, threats of sexual violence, um, just the general insults, you know, that you receive. I, I think I've grown an, another layer of, of skin in terms of my sensitivity. They just, they, they just bounce off of me now. Unlike bullets, their words actually do bounce off of us and, and stick back on them. <laughs> exactly. And my children's safety is far too important. I mean, if only these people who are so diametrically opposed knew how strongly I felt about my children, they wouldn't even bother hmm. to wake up every day and insult me and confront me because I will never back down. And every single mom who is part of our organization feels the exact same way. There, you can threaten my life all day long. It means nothing to me if the safety of my children is in jeopardy. Thank you so much, Anna. Okay, thank you. All right, take care. That was Shannon Watts of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. Get involved at momsdemandaction.org.
For our third and final update today, we checked in with The Good Fight's most frequent ever guest, Garland Gilchrist II. Garland's a six foot eight basketball whiz, software engineer, and powerhouse political campaigner. He grew up in Detroit, but left Michigan for a job at Microsoft, then moved into politics and advocacy as national campaign director for MoveOn.org based here in D.C. During the first eight months of this show, when he lived here in the Capitol, he co-hosted a segment on The Good Fight called The Win Report. But then he did something unusual. He picked up, and along with his wife and baby twins, Emily and Garland III, he moved back to Detroit. Now, most people in the U.S. and around the world think of Detroit as a place that people leave. The other day I read an essay in the New York Times Magazine by the Norwegian writer Carl Ove Nausgaard, who wrote this about his reaction to Detroit. He wrote, I'd seen poverty before, of course, even incomprehensible poverty, as in the slums outside Maputo in Mozambique, but I'd never seen anything like this. If what I had seen tonight, house after house after house abandoned, deserted, decaying as if there had been a disaster, if this was poverty, then it must be a new kind of poverty. And indeed, there's a lot of poverty in Detroit and a lot of blight. The most comprehensive study found that 30% of land parcels in Detroit are sitting vacant, and of those that do have buildings, 30% are partially or entirely dilapidated. That's a pretty grim specter to return to. In episode 30 of The Good Fight, Garland told the story of his life and the decision to return to Detroit, a city he never gave up on, a city he still loves. So for this episode, we asked him how it's actually been going since he got there. I've wanted to come home for nine years, and so the fact that that's actually happened makes me the happiest guy in Detroit, despite all the challenges that have been associated with that to this point. You know, when I was a kid and I lived downtown, like on the near east side of the city, I could see from my bedroom window the Renaissance Center, which is kind of the iconic building of downtown Detroit. I could see like the flashing red light that's on top of tall buildings so planes don't run into them. And now my kids from our place where we live, they can see the Ambassador Bridge, which is this big suspension bridge that connects Detroit to Windsor, Ontario. And it's when it's lit up at night, it's absolutely spectacular. And so I think it's kind of cool that I had something great in downtown Detroit to look at as a kid out of my window. And now Garland and Emily have the same thing. So what have you been doing with technology in Detroit? My first priority was to help rebuild the trust of Detroit citizens in Detroit's government. And so the cornerstone of that has been a transparency and open data initiative for the city of Detroit for the first time in its history, making it so that it was easy to get information on how the government is operating and so that you didn't have to file a complicated Freedom of Information Act request and pay money just to find out stuff that the government should be giving you. So what's an example of that? Sounds pretty abstract to me. So we just released a website called data.detroitmi.gov, which is an open data portal for the city where you can go on that site and basically enter in an address or a street name or whatever. And you can see everything that the city government knows about that address. And so one of the things you could see from that is like, oh, hey, there was an electrical permit issued on this date that expires on that date. You know, I moved in December to a new house and in my backyard, we have this like kind of decaying wooden fence. And then behind that is like this patch of land that is just, it's just like brambles and weeds. And I'm convinced, like, I just don't get who owns it. And I want to annex it to be part of my backyard. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So what would I do if I were in Detroit? Well, it's actually funny you mentioned that. So in Detroit, we have this really awesome program that's, that's managed by our Detroit land bank authority called side lot sales. And so if you are a homeowner, and like, you know, you're current on your, on your property taxes and all that stuff. And there's a vacant lot adjacent to your home. 
you can actually go and apply to buy that side lot for $100 from our Detroit Land Bank Authority as long as what? everything is clear on that. Yeah, and you can then choose to maintain that lot as part of your own property. It's actually really awesome. And on data.detroitandmy.gov, you can see a map of all the side lot sales that have happened in the city since, since early 2014, and they're all over the city. It's really exciting. That is awesome. I want a $100 vacant lot. <laughs> We also released a daily and hourly updated crime feed that gives people updated information on when when crimes are reported in their neighborhood or in, throughout the city of Detroit. We're just putting it out there and being completely transparent because we think the best way to build trust is to be honest. And the best way to be honest is to tell people what's going on. When you look back at all those years that you spent away from Detroit and then coming back now, like, do you feel like you, you did this right? Do you wish you'd done anything differently? I would have loved to have not left because I felt like the opportunities that I wanted for myself were available to me in 2005. But at that time, I didn't feel like that was true. And my goal is to make it such that people who will face that same decision from this day going forward won't feel like they have to leave Detroit to get great experiences or very specific experiences. You know, I left because I didn't think that I could get the right type of experience as a software developer. And so that's why I left Michigan. I want that to change for people who are interested in that field and other fields. The bigger vision for what I want to do is make it so that people can see any type of future that they want is possible in Detroit. Uh, and then what about your parents? What's it been like to move into the same place with them? It's been really great. They're, they're really excited that I'm home. Um, I, I don't think they really believed me. All those years when I said I was going to move back to Detroit. So I feel good to keep a promise that I made to myself and kind of prove some people wrong on that. And they're just happy to be, be near their grandchildren. And that was Garland Gilchrist II, Deputy Technology Director for Civic and Community Engagement for the City of Detroit. Check out data.detroitonline.gov to see if you can buy a $100 vacant lot next to your house or go to garland.org to get in touch with Garland and ask how you can help. So concludes episode 41 of The Good Fight. This episode, along with music credits and links to everything we just talked about, can be found at thegoodfight.fm slash 41. That's the number 41. Huge thanks to our team, associate producer Zach Young, executive producer Susan Davis, production coordinator Hottam Helmy. Thanks to our guests, Simone Campbell, Shannon Watson, Garland Gilchrist II, as well as to past guest Zach Walls, who stopped by to sign books for our Kickstarter backers as we were taping. And thanks to our sponsor and partner, MoveOn.org Political Action, and all 1,044 heroes who backed us on Kickstarter, you are the best. To get the next episode of The Good Fight the moment it comes out, hit the subscribe button on iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. Thanks to We Act Radio 1480 AM in Washington, D.C. for airing us, to Progressive Congress in Washington, D.C. for hosting our studio, to Beth Wickler, my wife, Mac Wickler, my son, and Susie Lynn Wickler, my month-old daughter, and thanks to you, our amazing listeners. Email us at show at thegoodfight.fm. I'm Ben Wickler, thanking you for being part of The Good Fight. <laughs>